Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. My name is Eric Snader, and I am bringing you the 34th episode of the podcast. Um, As you may have saw last week, I didn't upload a podcast in order to leave some space to highlight um, black voices within the industry of podcasting. Honestly, right now, um, in the climate that we're in, one of the last things that we need to be putting all of our attention on and all of our focus on is the voice of a middle-class white white man. Um, So with that being said, (laughs) this podcast happens to be uh, two white men talking, and I want to be upfront about that. This is a conversation between two white men, but it's a conversation between two white men of how... um, white Christians can begin confronting the problem of white supremacy, particularly within Christianity. One of the things that I've been learning a lot over the past couple of weeks, and possibly you may have been learning a lot over the past couple of weeks as well, is one of the one of the first places that um, white people need to start with when it comes to combating white supremacy, combating racism, is to actually engage in these sorts of conversations um, where you are realizing your own complicity, you're realizing your own participation in these systems that are oppressive and dehumanizing. Um, So I found this conversation really helpful. We do get into that a little bit in the podcast. But with that being said, I do want to give you a little bit of an introduction um, for who I interviewed. His name is Dr. Christopher Norris. He is a professor at Wesley Theological Seminary, and he has a book coming out in August called Witnessing Whiteness. Um, So that's that book is the primary vehicle for this conversation. Um, Chris is absolutely wonderful, super wise, um, super knowledgeable, just a really great individual. Um, And I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope it's something that's helpful for you as well. Um, But without further ado, Chris Norris on witnessing whiteness. Let's talk about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. Uh, My name is Eric Snader, and I have a very special guest with me today. Um, He is Dr. Christopher Norris. Um, He is a professor at Wesley Theological Seminary who specializes in public theology, Um, and he has a book coming out in a couple months called Witnessing Whiteness, and we are going to be talking about that book as well as how we begin to confront white supremacy in our church and society this week. So, without further ado, I'm going to leave some space for Chris to introduce himself. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, come and talk about uh, you know uh, current events. Uh, you know what's going on in America right now and, and the kind of longer history of, of white supremacy and the connections between white supremacy uh, and the Christian church in America. Uh, so I uh, appreciate the work that you do and for having me. 
uh, on for this conversation today. Uh, yeah, I teach public theology at Wesley Theological Seminary here in Washington, D.C., and focus on issues of church uh, politics uh, and race. I'm a uh, born Southerner. I've lived in the South for my entire life. DC is as far north as I've uh, lived, and so um, you know, come with that uh, uh, cultural and, and and religious background to to these issues. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited to have a, a conversation about these things. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, um, I guess a really good entry point into this conversation, because obviously this is broader than just one singular book, and I'm sure that we'll be getting into a lot of different facets of white supremacy and how we begin confronting that. But as a sort of entryway avenue, do you mind just going over sort of what the thesis or summary of your upcoming book is about? Yeah, yeah. Witnessing Whiteness is, is focusing on identifying the, the roots of white supremacy within the Christian church's theology and practice, or should I say the kind of white American church's theology uh, and practice. What it, what it really tries to do is identify some of the ways that uh, the church, the, the, the white church and white theology and white theologians uh, both confront and try to avoid, and mostly try to avoid these conversations about race, but also identifies the uh, kind of implicates European and then American white theology with the invention of white supremacy. Now, white supremacy is really a, a theological innovation and has theological roots. And until the white church in America begins to kind of uncover some of those uh, historical and theological underpinnings, uh, we're not going to be able to adequately confront uh, our own role in, in white supremacy. And so uh, it makes the point that rather than the white church or white theologians, white theology, being complicit in white supremacy as something that's out there that you know has has affected the church. Uh, it's really our responsibility, uh, and we have a particular responsibility to confront it. And then I, I try to show the ways that it uh, pops up in different white theologians, from Walter Rauschenbusch and Reinhold Niebuhr, and 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 contemporarily uh, uh, Stanley Hauerwas. I kind of come from that uh, white. You know, Anabaptist, traditionalist, uh, post-liberal perspective, and so I want to uncover some of the ways that my own tradition uh, has been complicit in supporting uh, this. And so I draw a lot from the uh, Black Liberation theology of James Cone, uh, but specifically to help the white church and other white theologians uncover the ways that we continue to perpetuate and support white supremacy, and then at the end turn to some uh, uh, specific practices and ways that we can uh, begin to, to to do that important work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously I don't, I don't want to just like ruin the book for everyone because obviously I want people to buy the book and read the book. I'm really looking forward to buying the book and reading the book, but what are some of, some of those roots that you were talking about? Um, obviously white supremacy and racism hasn't just sprung out of the ground out of nowhere. This is something that's been going on for generations and generations. So, um, sort of in, in your understanding, where do some of those roots come from? Yeah, uh, so a lot of contemporary black theologians, especially uh, folks like J. Cameron Carter uh, and Willie Jennings, have done a good job of showing um, that the European churches uh, sort of break with Judaism, that beginning of kind of basically supersessionism, that beginning to see 
uh, the, the, the uh, Christian European church as the, as the, the centerpiece of, of uh, Christianity and sort of the normative example of, uh, of, of, of Christianity kind of displacing um, the, the Jewish roots of the faith uh, and, and kind of altering the image of Christ from, uh, you know, Palestinian uh, Jew to a uh, kind of white European uh, to to a white savior. Yes, exactly. Um, reframe the way that we think about uh, not only the faith but also others, uh, religious others, and ethnic others. Um, that we beca- white Europeans became normative, and so when we began, uh, when when white Europeans began sort of expanding across the globe in their uh, kind of imperialist colonialist uh, endeavors, and encountered both religious and um, kind of differently bodied uh, others, the, the only way they knew how to think about them at that point was as inferior uh, because they had placed themselves at the height of, of, of this hierarchy. And there are all sorts of, um, you know, figures and, and movements and all that factor into this. But it was really uh, even before the transatlantic slave route, even before the colonialist uh, endeavor, European theologians and, and Christians had been trained uh, through sort of years of, of, of work, at, of, of seeing other people uh, as inferior. And so the, the, the kind of roots for white supremacy uh, and for the effects of that, including, you know, the, the slave trade and all of that, were already set around the time, but, you know, before this happened, uh, is, is one of the arguments mm-hmm. of the book. And so uh, when, when we began, you know, exploring uh, the Americas or, or, or Africa, uh, it, we uh, were conditioned already uh, to place ourselves as uh, superior. And that conditioning was, in effect, a theological one. Right. In in what ways was it theological? Yeah. Uh, I mean, in, in, in some ways, like I mentioned, because it was Christological, right? We began mm-hmm. to uh, identify Christ as this uh, kind of white savior uh, and, and saw ourselves, or I'm, I'm kind of placing myself in the white European mindset, now, uh, saw right. ourselves as, as in, in that image, right? And so we were the only ones who were then going to be able to, to save uh, these other folk through, through whatever means necessary, uh, you know. Um, and uh, th- through, through different ways of thinking about uh, difference. I mean, some of it's rooted in uh, interpretations of the Bible. Some of it's rooted even in, in kind of seemingly innocuous language of, of uh, biblical language of identifying white with purity and, and goodness and black with darkness and, and, and evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so there are all kinds of strands that are kind of coming that on their own may be somewhat innocuous or wouldn't have the types of implications that they have. But as they come together, um, you know, through, uh, you know, through the uh, crusades and beginning to identify uh, darker skinned people with, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, heathens or infidels or, or that type of thing. All these different uh, paths sort of converge, uh, you know, in the um, kind of medieval period to begin to, to, to see that. So you, you look at things like uh, the ways that uh, white Christians in England and in Spain began kind of identifying uh, Jews as not only religiously other, but also ethnically other. And you begin to see that mm-hmm. shift around the 11 or 1200s. Uh, so race mm-hmm. and religion get to be conflated in a way uh, that becomes really dangerous later. And so religious difference gets sort of mapped on to uh, ethnic difference and then religious hierarchy, thinking that Christianity is, is, you know, a superior religion to Judaism begins to morph into thinking that white 
you know, Christians, white Europeans are uh, superior uh, to European Jews. And then that's, like I said, that sets the stage for colonialism and the way we began to see other people uh, as they, as uh, Europeans and, and Christians began expanding out of uh, the European context. Right, 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 right. Um, so in what ways have you seen these sort of roots cropping up in modernity? Yes, yeah. In our modern history? Yeah. Um, so a, a, a few ways. I mean, so the, the, in the book, I focus uh, sort of explicitly on uh, Rauschenbusch, Niebuhr, and even and more so on, on Harawas, because I think Harawas is one of the most kind of inf- influential theologians of the you know last 50 years. I'd make the argument that probably he and Cohn t- together are. Uh, and I've also done some other work on, on, on Bonhoeffer uh, on this. I think you see it in, 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 uh, in some ways specifically that this this sort of formation uh the kind of of you know a, a understanding whiteness as not only uh something that has to do with skin color but a way that uh we kind of our, our identities are, are shaped in our uh kind of uh social uh um presence uh is shaped uh it's been uh kind of sedimented for so long over over uh the last four or five hundred or years or, or, or longer, that at this point it's become so normative that the main problem in modernity is this blindness. Uh, we, we're just not mm-hmm. trained in ways uh, to recognize it. And our theology doesn't really give us resources to, to do that. The Christian church has been implicated in uh, of racial oppression uh, for so long um, that we don't even, that we, 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 in some ways, lack the resources to begin to see the ways that we're actually involved in that, uh, much less ways to uh, kind of build ourselves and, and kind of move ourselves out of that. And this is where I think someone like James Cohn's criticisms of the white church and of our blindnesses and avoidance of talking about this. Think about, you know, uh, maybe people like James Baldwin, who've been, who've been you know, Im- important critics of the white church and in, in perpetuating uh, these blindnesses to... Uh, um, to, to not see what we're doing. Another part of that, especially in the American context, has been uh, our individualism, right? We think about, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, as I come from a Baptist uh, background where, uh, you know, it's the priesthood of the believer. Every single believer, you know, has the right to interpret the scripture on our own. Uh, we're responsible for our own salvation. I come out of the Mennonite tradition, oh, okay. so yeah, I, I completely understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and, and that trains us in... in multiple ways to one to to think about um to kind of prioritize the sort of individual spiritualization over social transformation right so we focus mm-hmm. on uh the afterlife and on uh our own spirituality uh and 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 in some cases in some contexts don't see christianity as as, as a uh, movement that's called to to address some of these um you know social issues it also trains us to think in terms of individual responsibility uh on kind of social and moral issues, right? Um, it, it helps us to it sometimes veils or hides the structural systemic uh, issues that are out there. And so we begin to think, um, you know, about uh, that, that uh, people who are underprivileged are in that way because of some sort of moral lacking. You see this, especially in some of the theologies of, of Rauschenbusch and Niebuhr early on. It kind of, you know, it, it manifests in a sort of paternalistic ethic. Like, you know, I'm the white... Christian who can help save you 
uh, and bring you out of this, but it's because of your own moral failings, not because of 400 years of systemic oppression uh, that has caused this. But then thirdly, and most importantly, and this is where I focus on the book, in the book, um, it, it works to shield white Christians from seeing our own whiteness in the ways that that whiteness plays out in things like religion and even public policy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is where uh, I think um, the, it trains us to think of the solution to racism in terms of colorblindness rather than seeing colorblindness itself as a form of racial oppression. We begin to right. see everybody as, as, you know, as, as equal. Everyone has equal opportunity in America, right? This is the American dream. Um, you know, uh, our, our kind of view of salvation is, you know, Christ came to save everybody, open to, to, to everyone. All of these things in right. some ways train us to see everybody as equal, and, and, and whiteness begins to kind of universalize everything and say everyone— uh, has the same relationship to each other, the same relationship to God as, as, as I do. And we fail to see the ways that some of these racial and ethnic differences, um, uh, you know, create discrepancies and inequalities uh, and inequities. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, and, and so white people uh, s- struggle to confront the ways that our kind of embodied presence and our social and identity construction um, uh, impact and inflect both the way that we worship, the way that we think about others, the way we think about politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Particularly on that last point, you know, it made me think of something like the all lives matter movement Mm -hmm. where rather than, rather than focusing our efforts on bringing everyone up to a level playing field, so to speak, it was, it was that colorblind, colorblindness, mentality where it's like well we all matter and like i don't know, I don't know. it's 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 something that it's something that really is frustrating to me because it's like it's true but it's also not the point mm-hmm. um, because you're you're still making it about yourself you're still making it about me, 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 me. And it's just, it's not as, as a white male, it's not about me. Mm -hmm. It's not about me. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And that's, uh, again, I think the, uh, sort of universalizing tendency of, of white Christianity, we want to sort of whitewash everything and, and, and think of it as, as everyone and everything is, is equal. Um, which, you know, in and of itself is not a bad thing, but the effect of that is that it overlooks some of these inherent and systemic, uh, you know, inequalities there, uh, especially during uh, kind of the current times of protests. I've seen a meme sort of circ- circulating around social media that I actually think is, is, is really powerful uh, and hopefully effective. Uh, looking at the um, Jesus parable about uh, leaving the 99 sheep to go find the one sheep uh, that, that's lost. And, and that's the, the, the black sheep in this case and saying, you know, Jesus cares for all, all sheep, but there are, uh, there's one sheep that, that needs, uh, you know, help right now that needs attention uh, right now. And to say, uh, you know, all sheep matter is, is true, but it misses the point uh, that, right. you know, that there's, there's one sheep that's hurting. Uh, right. And I think that uh, the quicker, and, and I think we're, uh, Especially in the last few weeks, I think we we, we see some, uh, some some progress there. Uh, I think people are beginning to sort of recognize some of the uh, systemic you know issues here. But I think that we've even our language has contributed to this in some ways. 
we see uh we see different uh events that happen the you know uh the uh you know police brutality or uh dylan roof uh you know uh, with the the massacre uh mother emmanuel or the uh you know uh racist el paso walmart shooter we see individual actors and we or or the the marchers in charlottesville and we label those people white supremacists those are racists uh those are Mm -hmm. white supremacists and i think what that does is that shields even well-meaning progressive liberal uh, white people from seeing the white supremacy that we're uh, involved in, that lives inside of us. Uh, and so right. I think we need to make a shift from, from thinking of white supremacists as, as these individual bad actors who are out there that I can then distance myself from, to thinking of white supremacists as a, an ideology, a practice, a movement that, that engulfs all of us, that we're all, all white people are implicated in, even as well-meaning uh, as we might be. Right. I, I know one of the, I mean, I've been, I've been checking out social media a lot over the past couple of weeks. And one of the images that was circulating a lot over, um, the past couple of weeks amongst some of my clergy friends was an image of almost like this, this social pyramid that was sort of dissecting what white percent, white white supremacy and racism really is so like at the top it's it's the obvious racism of neo-nazis and kkk members and people running around with tiki torches and all this other kind of stuff but then underneath is all the stuff that we're blind to so things like white savior complex things um you know these things that we don't even start thinking about or realizing um, but that's still very much playing a part into the system and structure that is dehumanizing people. I think that's exactly right. And I, th- I think we've seen, th- these are not necessarily uh, church or Christian examples, but two examples of this in the last like week that I think are important. One uh, being the uh, a- Amy Cooper uh, incident in, in Central Park, uh, where uh, she was walking the dog. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, was Christian Cooper was was doing some bird watching and asked her to put her dog on leash and she threatened to call the uh, cops and say an African American man was attacking her. Um, mm-hmm. I think implicit in that is is the fact that we see like that she, she perhaps like unconsciously recognizes the power of whiteness, right? Uh, mm-hmm. She can she just by fact of her sort of white presence, she recognize she 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 knows about uh, kind of. Uh, black relations with uh police and the history there and threatens to use that power uh against this person um and then i think we see that in uh the drew Brees example uh you know uh, i don't i don't know if i'm familiar with that one okay so drew Brees, quarterback for the saints a couple uh days ago uh i I don't know why he's talking about this now but he uh said that he uh like again, sort of disagrees with the Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling during the national anthem protest from a few years ago, and says he thinks that anybody who 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 kneels is is disrespecting the flag or the military, uh, and 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 thinks that that's uh, um you know uh, wrong. I guess he's maybe anticipating what could happen if the NFL season starts back up, um, and he immediately got backlash from uh, LeBron James and and other athletes who are saying you know you're missing the point, Kaepernick's. Uh, uh, protest wasn't about the military or about the flag. It's about the treatment of African Americans in in uh, this country, and even from some of his own wide receivers. But even more important than that, when he saw the kind of backlash and issued an apology, he still talked about it in terms of 
uh, I know I'm part of the solution here. I know I can be a leader for the black community. This white quarterback, in in his apology, talking about him being the solution to this, never once in this apology did he recognize or explicitly state, I'm part of the problem. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I think both of those examples are the ways that, you know, that neither of these people are out, uh, you know, marching with tiki torches or, uh, you know, engaging in, you know, explicit violence, but they're both sort of, uh, examples of the ways that, uh, whiteness changes our worldview and, and affects us in ways that even like, uh, kind of a well-meaning person like Drew Brees, fails to recognize that he's part of the problem. Uh, and it has this, uh, kind of you know, enhanced view of himself to think that, you know, well, I'm, I'm part of the solution here and I just made a mistake, but I'm still on the right track rather than thinking about the, you know, the deep work that he and other white people, especially well-meaning white people need to do in order to recognize first the ways we're part of the problem before we even begin to think about ways that we can be part of the solution. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's part of that like white savior complex that I, that I was talking about a little bit earlier, where it's like this, this feeling that because I'm in a place of privilege, I can somehow use that as a weapon against a system that I've benefited from. And not to say that, you know, using my voice to support black lives matter is a bad thing. That's, that's a very positive thing, but to have this feeling of superiority, like you were saying, to have this feeling of I matter, this is, this is something that I'm doing. This is something that I'm leading it. Like, like I mentioned earlier, it's not about me. It's not about white people. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. To, to avoid that white savior complex is, is important to see, uh, you know, to like in our, our current moment of, of protesting and that, that sort of thing. I think it's important for white people to be to be out there, to be visible in solidarity um, as long as uh, in those public spaces, we're willing to sort of submit to the uh, to the leadership of black community activists who have been doing this for a lot longer than we have. Uh, and listen Absolutely. to them and enhance their voices. On the flip side, I do think it's important for white people to speak out. I mean, they're, uh, you know, uh, kind of calls to end sort of white silence about this are important. And that's what I, uh, you know, kind of focus my uh, critiques of, of Harawas and other white theologians who, who just sort of, you know, evade uh, this issue. Um, but I think that that conversation needs to happen between white people. We don't need to, one, rely on black people to, to uh, kind of come and, and, and correct us and teach us. There are plenty of, of resources already out there, including the works of right. James Cohen and other black theologians and womanist theologians who help us see some of these issues very critically. But, uh, but I do think it's important for white people to speak and take some responsibility and leadership but within the white community, right? And within our white churches right. to begin to have these conversations, these difficult conversations about how we can recognize uh, the way our own racial formation, the way that uh, you know our race and our social context has shaped us to see the world around us and to be able to deconstruct mm-hmm. that. Uh, I think that's the place where uh, we do need white leadership and white voices, um, but not taking the place of black voices out in the public uh, square, but within right. our own communities. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so in your in your opinion, how how do we begin to start breaking that silence? What do those conversations look like? Yeah. Either in our church communities or in our families or you know what have you? Yeah. Um, I think it begins by taking a look at 
Uh, well, so I'll say it this way. So in, in, in the book, I'll, I'll give away the ending a bit, right? Uh, <laughs> but I think after, after looking at uh, kind of deconstructing these white theologians, and especially the way that I think Harawas uh, is, a, is a particularly helpful exemplar of this in that he, uh, he gives reasons for why he doesn't talk about race, right? And I think those reasons are, 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 are important. And so he and other people sort of lay, uh, serve as, as, as good examples of this. Um, when I make the turn to like, you know, what, what can we do uh, at the end, the constructive part of the book, uh, I think that taking responsibility, white churches and white theologians, taking responsibility for white supremacy looks like three things. Uh, and, and, I, and I get these three things from, uh, from my interpretation of, of Cohn's message uh, to white theologians. And I think that uh, for the sake of uh, alliteration, it looks like three steps that begin with R. The first is remembrance. The second is repentance, and the third is reparation. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think that f- that first step is crucial. You can't get to the second two until you begin that first step. And that first step is 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 uh, looking at our past and kind of interrogating our present and the way that we uh, talk about these things, the way that we talk about faith and theology, and the ways that it does or doesn't have something uh, to do with our racial formation. Um, I think it begins looking at the uh, you know last thousand years of Christian history uh, and the ways that our tradition has taught us to think in, you know, in these individualistic terms and these over-spiritualized terms uh, to avoid some of these issues and to look for the ways and the tools that uh, our faith has used to, to, uh, to prop up uh, whiteness and, and to sort of help fuel white supremacy. We're not going to get to um, where we need to be until we do the difficult work of evaluating the ways that our practices uh, even Christian practices have have have, have shaped us. Uh, there's a good book by uh, Lauren Winter called "The Dangers of Christian Practice," where she talks about that even some of our like most deeply held, uh, you know, Christian sacraments and practices like baptism or the Eucharist are tainted uh, with racism and white supremacy. Um, you know that uh, that Eucharist, what they call it, sort of host desecration. This this kind of myth that in the uh, medieval ages that um, Jewish citizens were were contaminating the uh, the bread or, or, or the wine uh, and uh, um, contributed to to uh, even the way that we think about Eucharist today. And so th- that there there are these sort of racial uh, taints and 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 uh, uh, kind of corruptions of practices. Uh, thinking about baptism as something that sort of white like washes away our ethnic identity and creates this sort of colorblind mm-hmm. society in a way that I think is actually dangerous. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ways that we think about these practices sometimes aid and abet white supremacy. And so we need to do the deep work of interrogating those and remembering our history and how that has set up the, um, you know, inequalities that we see today. And then beyond that, then we begin to get to the point where we can, uh, you know, repent. Uh, for, for, for these things, and that repentance has to take uh, a public, um, a public form. Uh, and, uh, and, and in each of these cases, I, I talk about different uh, a few white churches that I think are, are trying to, to to do this work. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give uh, and, and and then you know, uh, kind of that reparation is the uh, concrete work that 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 has to happen after that. I mean, you think about you know, there's biblical precedent for that. Thinking about Zacchaeus, he encounters Jesus, uh, he has a conversion experience, and his first act after this conversion experience is to want to like financially pay back the people uh, that he has stolen from. Uh, and so, right. uh, I think you know, in, in white Christian resistance to conversations about uh, reparations, I want to say like 
here. There, it's, it's in the Bible, okay? Uh, yeah. You know, it's, there. it's not <laughs> concept foreign to Christianity. Um, I'll, and I'll, I'll say one of the things I said, I mentioned a few uh, churches that are doing this. So I'll take a minute to highlight my own uh, congregation here in, in D.C. Uh, my church here was founded in 1862, so during the uh, height of the Civil War. And the story that we've told ourselves is that we were a church that split off from another Baptist church here in D.C. Uh, because uh, we were abolitionists, and this other church um, had Southern sympathies. Um, mm-hmm. And so this uh, church began with, with abolitionist uh, um, activism, uh, and, and since that time, for the last 150 years, has been involved in, in sort of progressive activism. Recent uh, kind of work in the archives has uh, discovered that that narrative has been false. And that narrative, like it's appeared in the Washington Post, it was in you know our, our, our self-understanding, our, our, our identity. And we realized that it mm-hmm. was not uh, a group of abolitionists. It was a group of union sympathizers, but they were people who thought that the nation needed to stay together at all costs. Uh, even if that included like allowing uh, certain states to continue uh, slavery. And in fact, mm-hmm. the um, primary benefactor for the land that the church currently occupies in the building and the man who the sanctuary is named after uh, was himself a slaveholder. Uh, and so that, and I think this is a good example of the type of work that all kind of white Christians need to do is look at our history and examine the story that we've told about ourselves. I'm this progressive liberal, uh, you know, white Christian uh, you know, we, we need to interrogate that. That might, that might be a myth that we have uh, told ourselves um, in, in ways that allows us to continue to perpetuate harm rather than doing the work that we need to do. And so we, this church is, uh, you know, we've now we're trying to rightly remember our past and then figure out what true what repentance for that looks like and what reparations may look like for, uh, you know, both financial and otherwise, but, but even kind of on this, you know, financial level, like what does it look like that our church was, uh, um, uh, founded on land that was uh, procured with uh, the money of a slaveholder. Right, right. No, um, and I think that's that's really hard for a lot of people uh, because that w- what you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about individualism sort of being very present within at least American society, and this this feeling that well. You know, I'm living in the 20th century. You know, I'm I'm woke. I I didn't own slaves. My aunt, like I don't know. For me personally, I grew up in Pennsylvania. My family has lived in Pennsylvania their entire lives. You know, my my ancestors, to my knowledge, were not slave owners themselves. But that doesn't mean that I'm any less implicit in. Um, in the in the systems and structures that continue to dehumanize people mm-hmm. um you know there's there's plenty there's plenty of this white supremacy that exists outside of even just the southern states of the united states it's it's everywhere it is absolutely everywhere mm-hmm. yeah I, I think that's right and there are good resources out there to that uh you know can help us see the ways that uh um, race plays into the wealth gap or in, in all these other uh, ways of, you know, in, into, uh, you know, police behavior, especially right now to see the ways that uh, um, racism just infiltrates all aspects of society and has for so long um, that these uh, kind of structural inequalities at this point just seem sort of the way that it is or, nor- you know, kind of normalized. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so yeah. it takes, it takes, uh, really difficult work to kind of stop and to change our thinking to begin to like reflect inward both internally 
on a personal level and with, uh, you know, with the communities of which we're part to think about the ways that uh, we've either been blind to some of these things to, to, to see the ways that our, that our whiteness has, has uh, given us certain privileges, has set us up from the beginning. I mean, and this doesn't mean that, you know, white people can't suffer or white people uh, don't have problems, but it does mean that, like, the, that suffering and some of those problems aren't likely of, of, um, uh, based on, on, on our race. Uh, you know, right. um, and I think that that's important, uh, an, an, an important realization to come to. Right. I, I mean, I definitely resonate with that. A lot of, a lot of my own personal suffering, um, which I mean, not to belittle suffering, but a lot of it has been like internal strife. It's a lot of it has been like relationships that I've had with other people. A lot of it has been, um, driven by, being unsure of who I am as an individual or where I'm supposed to be moving. But never once has that suffering been associated with fear of walking out on the street or being stopped for a speeding ticket by a cop or anything like that. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not in the same ballpark even. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's in the same ballpark and you know, it takes humility to really, to really recognize that and to truly confront it. Yeah. This, this reminds me of a, uh, a moment when I was doing research for this book. So for, for the book, uh, I was able to uh, do a few interviews with both Stanley Harawas and James Cohn before he, he passed away to include mm-hmm. some kind of original interview material in the, in, in, in the book. And I remember uh, one of the conversations I had with, with Cohn, and I was coming out of uh, time where I was uh, beginning to be sort of particularly d- d- depressed about the possibilities of white people um, confronting this and doing something about it. Uh, and, and, you know, confess, you know, uh, you know, I can go to a, uh, protest or a Black Lives Matter, uh, march and I can participate and, and try to show, uh, express solidarity there. But when I leave and drop away, I told him, you know, I don't have to worry about being pulled over by a racist cop or being followed around the convenience store as I stop to pick up water or, 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 or that sort of thing. Like it's easy, uh, for me, I can dip in and do this stuff and then leave back to the uh, kind of security of my own uh, white existence. And, and I, I, you know, asked, I was like, you know, if, if that's the case and I've, I never sort of face the same realities that other people do, like it's, you know, it's, it's, we, we have the expression of walking in someone else's shoes, but that's, you know, to a degree that's impossible. Right. Um, right. How can I ever and, like and- actually become actually ever contribute? Right. Um, and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, he, acknowledging the difficulty of that, uh, he, he sort of called on the power of the gospel and said, you know, there have been people who have done this uh, in the past, uh, and there are people who can do this now. Uh, and it just requires you to be willing to commit, to submit to black leadership, uh, and to sacrifice your own uh, desires and your own sense of uh, the right strategies and the ways to, to, to do this. Um, and it mm-hmm. may be costly. It may uh, mean that you have to leave a job that uh, you think is part of the problem or a church mm-hmm. that fails to recognize uh, this thing or have difficult conversations with family members or friends. It may be uh, costly work. It may mean we have to dismantle things that we hold dear uh, in order to reconstruct them. Uh, but it can be done. Right. Right. Um, you've mentioned you've mentioned James Cone a couple different times. Obviously, he's a huge, huge figure in terms of black liberation theology. Um, 
just as a just as a courtesy to my listeners, would you mind sort of just briefly briefly touching on sort of the main points of what James Cone's work has sort of encapsulated? Yeah, so, uh, James Cone's. I, I, that's a very big question. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah no, I think you give a, a brief uh, an introduction. Uh, yeah, he's considered the founder of Black liberation theology. This doesn't mean that Black uh, scholars weren't doing theology be- before this time. Um, but he, he sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, institutionalized the, the, the genre, um, and all the kind of black and womanist, uh, you know, theology, womanist being black, uh, kind of black feminist theology that we see, uh, from this point sort of originates with, with, with him. Um, he began as a, uh, a scholar of Karl Barth, uh, and drew heavily on works of like Barth and Tillich and, and Bonhoeffer and these other scholars. And uh, he just released a uh, um, memoir right before he died in, in 2018. And in, in that memoir, he talks about uh, living through the assassination of King uh, and the protests and riots that happened right after that. Uh, and he went back, you know, he had been in these white institutions, did his PhD at Northwestern, uh, was teaching at uh, white schools, um, eventually ended up teaching at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Uh, but realized that um, the white theology that he had used to kind of build and construct his, his scholarship was inadequate to the moment to address the pain mm-hmm. that black Americans were facing in 1968 uh, and 69. And so he returns. His brother was a pastor of a AME church uh, in Bearden, Arkansas. Uh, and he goes back there uh, and he's in uh, back to his community um, and begins to write uh, a book that will become Black Theology and Black Power, where he begins to say that... Uh, God isn't confined to a Christian church building. God is mostly concerned with the liberation of the oppressed. And in America, the oppressed, uh, the crucified people are black people. Um, And God, uh, God's that God identifies uh, with the oppressed. God works on behalf of the oppressed. And unless the Christian church, black or white uh, is concerned to join that movement, um, they're working against God's purposes and not really being the church. And from that point on, his work sort of takes on that theme. And he increasingly draws more and more on uh, kind of indigenous black uh, sources, uh, folktales, spirituals, blues, uh, to kind of build this black theology that uh, challenges white theologians to see our own racism and challenges black churches and black theologians to uh, continue to work uh, uh, on, on behalf of. Uh, um, black liberation uh, and and black thriving uh, in the U.S. and it's probably one of his his most famous work was in 2010, the cross and the lynching tree, where he equates Jesus' crucifixion with the lynching of black uh, people in America and says that you know anyone who sort of fails to see uh, this is 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 part of the problem. Um, and he was instrumental in in uh, kind of building a, a kind of U.S. liberation uh, theology and in, in kind of parallel to some of the Latin American. Uh, theologies that we see. He gets criticized from, from womanist theologians for neglecting the, the role of black women, and I think that's a really important critique. And there are plenty of critiques you can make uh, about his work, but he was foundational. Uh, and and I, I think the American theological scene and American church scene would look a lot different if he wasn't here or hadn't been here uh, and had the impact that he did over the last uh, 50 years. Um, he doesn't mm-hmm. hold many punches, uh, and so uh, when <laughs> no, I've, he doesn't. You know, yeah, so when I've called him in, in seminary classes, uh, there are a lot of white students who get upset, uh, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that it's uh, an important voice to, for, uh, for for us to hear. 
But that, I mean, that's, that's again, coming back to that realization that we need to have humility and we need to be able to submit. We need to be able to take those punches and understand where they're coming from and why they're important. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, absolutely. Cone, especially when he was younger was used more combative language at times, mm-hmm. but yeah. I mean, it's still a vitally important voice for people to be engaging with. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it was personal for me in a way. So uh, I did my dissertation at UVA I was doing a, uh, I wanted to do a dissertation uh, on politics and church. And I wanted to pick who I thought were the two most influential American theologians in the last 50 years. So Cohen and Harawas and just do a comparative study of the way they think about the role of politics in church and the ways churches can be political. Uh, and I've, uh, Proposed a, a dissertation, began doing work uh, on this, and uh, realized that I was doing an entire project dealing where you know one of my two main figures was the uh, founder of Black Liberation Theology and uh, race, racism, white supremacy, whiteness, blackness didn't appear uh, in the research project that I was working on. Uh, was, had kind of whitewashed over all of those aspects of what Cohen was doing to focus on this particular thing, uh, and 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 uh, realized that I was doing the same thing that white theologians have done for a long time because of our privilege. We're, we're blind to some of these things. We don't want to kind of move into some of uh, these issues that might become personal or, 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 or uh, hurtful or, or, or make us. Uh, have to ch- have to uh, you know concretely change uh, what we do, um, mm-hmm. and I and I had this realization as I was seeing all of the uh, um, uh, uh, kind of protesting around Michael Brown and and all of that that was happening it was like I am have t- been totally blind uh, to what is going on uh, and to what Cohen and other scholars are actually trying uh, to teach me. Um, and so I completely scrapped that project and, and turned to one that was, uh, you know, focused on the role of, uh, <laughs> focused on the ways that uh, white churches and white theologians are, are blind to these kind of things. So, so uh, this whole project that ended up uh, resulting in, in witnessing whiteness is, is a personal journey in some ways of, of uh, my own blindnesses in the ways that I had, mm-hmm. had done that both as a pastor and as a scholar. Right. But I, I mean, as your, as your example shows, I think I think having that realization, having that sort of epiphany is a really crucial step, um, y- you know, like because you are we are so blind to it um, without really being confronted by it, whether you are doing deep research, whether you um, you have a close loved one who is experiencing oppression and dehumanization, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, without having that experience or that epiphany, it's really hard to really break that ground. Mm-hmm. Well, and I hope that that's what's happening in our uh, current moment. Uh, you know, it, it mm-hmm. seems that sometimes it takes, uh, you know, unfortunately and tragically, these these awful uh, kind of experiences, and and uh, you know, most of the time has to be recorded on on video for people to sort of see uh, what's actually happening and begin to see and connect the dots uh, to see that this is not mm-hmm. just again, some individual bad actor, uh, that it's not a white supremacist cop, but it's a, um, a symptom of white supremacy uh, that, that engulfs us all. Uh, and it is like mm-hmm. you, you use the example of that pyramid. It's the top of the, the kind of centerpiece, top piece of that pyramid. Um, but that pyramid can't get there uh, except for all the kind of underlying 
uh, you know, white supremacy that often goes hidden, whether it's, uh, you know, a kind of harmless, uh, you know, racial uh, joke or whether it's uh, just refusing to, you know, have a conversation or whether it's uh, kind of avoiding some of the social implications of, of, of scripture uh, or just refusing to call out racism when we see it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, that, that it's there. And, 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 uh, uh, you know, I've seen a few polls in the last, uh, few days as the, uh, George Floyd, uh, protests have, have gone on, uh, that show that it seems that white Americans are beginning to see, to connect the dots and see mm-hmm. these individual actions and especially individual actions of law enforcement to be, uh, more systemic and not just, uh, kind of bad apples. Right. It definitely, it definitely has a different energy in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something, there's something momentous happening in this current moment. Yeah. Especially, um, you know, I hear that, uh, you know, there are protests in my, uh, the small town in North Carolina that I grew up in of yeah. you know, 20 or 30,000 people. I mean, who would have, who would have thought that, that that happens, but the fact that, you know, this is spread to, uh, you know, not only all the major kind of urban centers in, in the U S but, but small towns protests in Alaska, uh, you know, in different places. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and protests are just the, the first step. I think they're very important. Uh, and it right. seems that they've been effective both in sort of changing public sentiment and in, in, in uh, helping propel some uh, policy uh, solutions. But it's the, the first step in, in, in kind of longer, harder, uh, you know, long-term work. Yeah. Yeah. Cause this isn't something that's going to be fixed in a day. This is something that's going to take lots and lots and lots of, painful painful um leaching out yes yes um because it's something that's like baked into the bloodstream of our of our country um so what are some helpful resources for people um obviously um steps to be taking are to remember and to repent and to reparate but um you know, what, what are some helpful resources? Obviously, Cone is a helpful resource in the theological realm, but what are some helpful resources to help people to really begin to remember and repent? Yeah, uh, exa- exactly. So uh, first, I'll highlight a few Black scholars and Black voices that I think are important for Americans to read. Uh, one being uh, the kind of now classic book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, where she highlights uh, the ways that colorblindness has uh, helped shielded us from the ways that mass incarceration uh, kind of recapitulates uh, Jim Crow. Um, and I think that's a great place to start. Um, I'd recommend anything that uh, Cohen uh, has written. Uh, I think The Cross and Lynching Tree is a great place uh, to begin there. Also, uh, works by Kelly Brown Douglas. She's a uh, woman, a scholar, has a recent book out called Stand Your Ground that kind of talks about some of this, uh, the uh, the ways that kind of whiteness and American exceptionalism and the American dream train white people to kind of guard our property and our resources. Again, pretty relevant mm-hmm. to what's going on right now. Uh, yeah. uh, and and uh, has conditioned us to, to think it's justified to use violence, uh, especially against non-white people, um, uh, when we feel even the least bit threatened. So Stand, Stand Your Ground by Kelly Brown Douglas. Uh, a church group uh, we're currently reading a book by Will Gaffney called Womanist Midrash that gives uh, kind of uh, it's, a, it's a scriptural resource and so it gives um, uh, a kind of womanist uh, interpretation of uh, biblical stories uh, and so I think it's a great resource for uh, kind of church Bible study groups. But then also uh, kind of th- talking about the work of, of white people 
uh, kind of recognizing our own whiteness and, and how to overcome that. Uh, two especially, it's a book by a white uh, religious scholar named Jennifer Harvey called Dear White Christians um, that helps, uh, helps us see the uh, dangers of thinking about racial reconciliation. I know that could be a bit controversial because we, you know, as, as Christians, we, reconciliation is, is an important concept for us. But how um, a, a, a kind of obsession with the idea of reconciliation makes it seem like both white people and black people have equal burdens to kind of come and meet in the middle um, and have equal weight to share. Uh, and she makes a very compelling argument that, uh, that I kind of draw on in, in, in the book uh, to argue that talk of reconciliation um, burdens black people more than white people uh, and uh, is, is, is an um, kind of unfair uh, approach to thinking about um, racial injustice and how to uh, overcome that. And, and, and she makes the argument that reparations is, the, uh, is, is a more appropriate form. So uh, Jennifer Harvey, Dear White Christians, and then this is not a religious book, but one that I think is helpful and be really helpful for uh, kind of white study for, for, for uh, you know, uh, uh, book clubs or, or, or church groups. Um, it's called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, uh, which mm-hmm. helps show the way that, uh, that yeah, even especially well-meaning liberal white people um, who think that racism is bad are even more prone to not see themselves as racist. The, it's this paradox right. where the more you you are outraged by racism, the less likely you're able to see it within yourself, and the more defensive you become when you're confronted with that. Uh, and so she talks about ways that that manifests itself, and ways that white people can work to kind of overcome our own fragility and quick turns to defensiveness uh, when confronted with uh, the ways that we're all uh, kind of implicated uh, in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those are, are, are really good resources for doing that also uh there's um i'll put a shout out to bread uh for the world it's a advocacy poverty agency here and they have a, a racial gap a racial wealth gap simulation uh that, that mm-hmm. they can train you to do that kind of concretely so almost like a card game that kind of plays out the ways that uh some of these injustices are are that the uh Inequities that we see now are the result of 400 years uh, of racial oppression uh, and, and, and uh, how like it, it, it does require more than kind of uh, superficial nods to reconciliation to actually uh, see and, and, and confront the racial injustices around us. Right, right. Um, no, those, those, sound, those sound great. I, I mean, like I, like I mentioned, I have read some of Cohn. I've read some of the cross and the lynching tree. Um, and that's an excellent resource, but all of these sound, um, like wonderful, wonderful things that we should all be turning to mm-hmm. and engaging with and learning from. I think I, I saw, I saw a post on Instagram today, um, where it was talking about for some people, they're on the front lines protesting. For some people, they're posting resources on social media. For some people, they're just educating themselves or having tough conversations with their family. It's all important. Don't take your foot off the gas, whatever your medium is for confronting this and resisting white supremacy, do it. So, you know, if you need to educate yourself, educate yourself. If you need to go to the protest, go to the protest. If you need to um, confront your neighbor who is, um, who is using verbiage that seems to be part of the problem, um, you know, confront them on it, confront your own impl- complicity in being part of the problem as well. All it's that, exactly, all that yeah. stuff. 
That's exactly right. I couldn't say it better. <laughs> it's all it's all important. Um man, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty pretty good about about the conversation. Did you have any other points that you wanted to that you wanted to hit on? Any any other um things that you wanted to talk about? Uh no, no. I I think that this has uh been been great. Like I said, it's it's a timely conversation uh and it's important. Uh you know, what we see around us uh you know, uh changes quickly. I'm I'm encouraged by seeing um uh what seems like a kind of shift in the way white people are thinking about this and the way uh, white people are viewing some of the protests and seeing and connecting the dots and seeing uh, the ways that these are systemic issues and not sort of individual events or actors that are doing this stuff. But we have a long ways to go. And I think, uh, again, uh, um, I'd argue that the, 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 the white Christian church uh, helped invent the problem. Uh, and it's our responsibility to, to do the work of interrogating how that, how that occurred uh, to think about how we can be uh, uh, part of the uh, solution, but uh, contra uh, Drew Brees, uh, you know, we, we can't right. <laughs> get to think of ourselves as part of the solution until we begin to understand the ways that we were part of the problem. Right, right, absolutely. Um, so, what are just one one final question for you? What are some ways that people can be connecting with you and the work that you're doing? Whether it's reading your book that's coming out, um, it's coming out beginning of August, correct? Yes, yes. Um, so, what what are some other ways that people can be connecting with you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, it would definitely, uh, uh, you know, check out the book if you're interested in it. It's uh, <laughs> available for pre-order from on Amazon and Oxford University Press. It is uh, written with the University Press, but uh, I wrote it uh, hopefully in a way that can appeal to, uh, you know, people who aren't trained theologians or seminarians. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, try to include a lot of anecdotes, uh, you know, in, in, in there to make it something that could be a uh, hopefully a good church resource uh also um so uh and and they've promised to to uh sell it for uh for fairly cheap at your regular hundred dollar academic book um <laughs> yeah uh look at that if, if you have questions or want to follow up um uh you know feel free to uh to shoot me an email knorris at wesleyseminary.edu um you know we're uh the center for public theology at wesley's doing uh a lot of good work uh and, and especially kind of now focusing on some of these these issues here and so uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good work going on, but I'd love to, uh, engage and, and hear from anybody who has, uh, further, further questions or, or ideas about, uh, you know, uh, things that we could be doing. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. This has been very, very challenging, very insightful. Um, and hopefully I know it's been helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for, um, the listeners of the podcast as well. Um, we typically end the podcast by saying peace and love. So would you be willing to take us out? Yes. (laughs) Peace and love everybody. (laughs) 